You're one of the few people I know who went to see the Jimmy Buffett musical that was here in Chicago, Broadway in Chicago just recently, Escape to Margaritaville, full of songs by Jimmy Buffett. I, I only know one Jimmy Buffett song. How many do you know? I, I only knew three going into it. I knew Margaritaville, obviously. Yeah. I knew a song called Come Monday which people would recognize. Sure. The title isn't that indicative of what it's about, but they'd recognize... Come Monday, I'll be all right. Come yeah. Monday, I'll be holding you tight. Right. I spent four lonely days in a brown lonely L.A. Days. haze. That's probably the thing people would recognize. Right. And I did. And that's know, in the show? That is in the show. And then one of my favorite big production numbers was, Why Don't We Get Drunk and Screw? <laughs> They did that as a production number? They, well, yeah, they kind of did. I mean, they, awesome. they sing the whole song. They kind of make fun of it. What's fun about this show is it makes fun of itself in a way. I mean, there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek things. Like at one point, they're going to lunch, and they say they have a big buffet there. And they go, I believe it's pronounced buffet. They're like, no, that's the singer. And then, of course, we all laughed. So there's, it's, it's corny, but it's okay to be corny in that kind of yeah. genre that they're using. Seems, seems like. And, and is there a plot? Is there an actual there there is a plot. There is a plot. Um, a woman is going to this tropical island to study volcanic activity. And surprise, surprise, she meets somebody and falls in love. Rockily at first, but then um, eventually, I don't think it's much of a spoiler that it does kind of work out. It's Mamma Mia-ish in the sense that they have this catalog of songs, and then they try to make them all kind of fit the plot. And for the most part, they do. And when it doesn't, they kind of make fun of the fact that it doesn't. So that's where the tongue-in-cheek part comes in. Well, I just flew in from New York City, and boy, are my arms tired. Mm -hmm. That's an old joke. Good to be back in the booth this week with my friend and co-host, the Toast of Two Continents and theater aficionado, Frank Taranjo. Hey, welcome back, Frank. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Good Long-time to be here. Long-time listeners of this program will recall Frank from episode 54. Do you know which episode this is? Um, yes, I hear it's a very special number. Episode 69. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why you brought me in, I'm sure. Yeah, back on uh, 54, <laughs> we talked about uh, your background as a theater professor and lifelong love of the arts, and we plumbed the depths of your encyclopedic knowledge of theater, Broadway, and film. You picked my brain, and what little pickings there was, yeah. you managed to make a podcast Well, out of today's it, so. episode is highly focused on my and Frank's recent theater experiences here in Chicago and on Broadway, and we hope to give you a flavor of what's going on on the Chicago theater scene and a glimpse of the great white way, and we did just talk about Margaritaville, return to Margaritaville. Escape to Margaritaville. Oh, see? Yeah. That's, you're, you're, you're assuming it's going to be a huge hit and there's going to be a sequel. <laughs> is this Broadway bound? <laughs> it is Broadway bound. I think they actually have a date and a theater, just like when SpongeBob SquarePants was here. They're both opening at the in, same time. In previews now, the yeah. Tina Landau show. Right, right. It'll be interesting to see if people make comparisons because it's very similar to Margaritaville, not that it has Let's Get Drunk and Screw kind of numbers in it. Yeah, I mean, it's much did, more. I not think so. But it's underwater and tropical and kind of tongue in cheek and kind of silly and very, very colorful, which both shows are. So but I'm guessing they're going to make parallels between the two because they're opening very close to each other. I was in New York just recently um, on a whirlwind trip. We spent Thanksgiving week there. Tough to get tickets for a lot of things because, you know, they alter their schedules. Their shows don't play on Thursday. Then they had a Friday matinee and I, mm-hmm. for instance, Hello, Dolly, which we saw. Bette Midler was going to do the Friday matinee. And she I doesn't do like Tuesday. That. She doesn't do Tuesday because that gives her Sunday evening 
all day Monday and all day Tuesday off. And then she comes back for two shows on Wednesday. At least that's the way it was when I was there, because I saw a Wednesday matinee with her in it. And how did you enjoy yourself? (laughs) Well... If I say it was one of the best things I've ever seen in my life, I'm only slightly exaggerating. That's high praise. No, <laughs> oh, it is. It is. It was great. I mean, I managed to bite the bullet and buy one of the more expensive tickets, and I was in the third row center. And when she comes out on, you know, there, there's sort of a walkway in front of the orchestra. Sort of that apron, the apron circle thing. walk. I mean, she was yeah. literally right in front of me. And I've seen her in concert a number of times, but it was really interesting to see her, you know, playing a character, even though she kind of middlerized Dolly, which is great. That's what people are all going to see. We did not manage to get tickets to a bet show. So we saw Donna Murphy Mm -hmm. uh, on the Friday afternoon of Thanksgiving week. I will say that, yes, it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. You can't really compare it to like a Hamilton or a chorus line in, in that respect. But in terms of production values and song after song after hit song, beautiful performances... I don't think we missed Bet all that much. It'd have been nice to see her, but Donna Murphy's quite the seasoned professional, and I, I thought she was excellent. Oh yeah, she's a what two, three time Tony yeah. winner. She yeah. would be great in that. It was a thrill to see Bet, and obviously I went because it was Bet. I don't have to see another Hello Dolly. I've seen a number of them, but I was blown away. You're right by the production itself, and the other supporting characters were so wonderful that had I gone there on a day when Donna Murphy was there, I would walked out very satisfied when the full cast finally comes on stage during put on your sunday clothes which is very early in the show Mm -hmm. i I gasped Mm -hmm. (laughs) right out loud because the costumes were so spectacular they're Mm -hmm. they're done by the same guy who did the set santa laquasto and they are absolutely perfect throughout the show just gorgeous oh they are and a friend of mine I said I saw this, and it said, well, you know, other than the Hello, Dolly number, is there any good songs? And I'm like, oh, no, the Hello, Dolly number is one of many. And Put On Your Sunday Clothes is the one I mentioned. That is the first number that blows you away. It's not the first number in the show, but it is, like you said, the first big production number. I mean, yeah, the whole cast comes out. Then a whole train comes on stage. A train comes on stage you know, like, that you never expected. No. And, it's, and it's at the Schubert Theater. I've yeah. played the Schubert with a couple of shows before. <laughs> and it's not that deep a stage, and there's certainly mm-hmm. no wing space. I don't know what happened to that train, mm-hmm. if they drove it into the booth theater, which adjoins it or not. They must but it, it, when the train came on, mm-hmm. I had tears in my eyes. Mm-hmm. You don't see those kinds of production values, well, outside of New York, for sure. And you rarely see a big, big, huge musical being done that way any longer, especially a classic musical like this. A, a wonderful show. And I, as I said, we didn't see Bet, but I'm going to tell our listeners that if you had a if chance you still to see, see it, it and you can't see Bet, and you can't spend yeah. the five, six, seven, nine hundred dollars before January fourteenth mm-hmm. or fifteenth uh, before she leaves. Donna Murphy is a great choice, and I'm sure that Bernadette is going to be a pretty good draw. Bernadette should be good. The special thing about Bat is she's such a seasoned performer. Like when I was watching it, at one point she kind of like tripped. And then she looked out at the audience was sort of like, what the hell was that? And then went back to her character, and the audience, of course, went nuts. The night my friend saw it, she said that the set 
what's his name? Uh, Horace uh, Vandergelder. Horace Vandergelder. That set didn't David come Hyde on Pierce. when it was supposed to. And so they started playing against an empty thing, and she walked out, and she's like, the set didn't come on. And then she started talking with the audience like that. The audience <laughs> went nuts. And so she you know, has dealt with all kinds of things yeah. since she's been a live performer, and not just a live you know, actress with a character. She's been performing when I'm sure sets have caved in or she's tripped or other things have happened in her live show. Well, I'm sure that clamshell didn't work perfectly every Correct. night back Correct. in the 70s, yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. that was. Not that people should go and watch for mistakes, but if you see one, it'll be a special show. <laughs> Something else we saw that you saw recently was a show, is a show, I should say, it's now open, The Band's Visit, mm-hmm. which is a transfer from Off-Broadway last season. And they've kind of upped the ante, of course. Tony Shalhoub is the star of the show. I think he's underused. He is. And in fact, this was my turn not to see the major star in the show. Because when I saw it, Tony Shalhoub was not in it. But they had a Tony Shalhoub lookalike. <laughs> and he was fine. He was good. And I'm not sure it, was, it would be any different with, with Tony Shalhoub. And this guy was great. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it's not a star vehicle. Well, we saw it from the front row because oh. we, again, we were a little late in trying to get tickets. And it was Thanksgiving week. Mm-hmm. And we went on a Wednesday matinee. Speaking of costumes, I will just say this. Probably not worth seeing from the front row because I could see every pucker of every scene oh. in the band's uniforms. It's the Egyptian police memorial band that gets lost in Israel and they wind up in the wrong town. It's a town that sounds like where they wanted to go, but is slightly different than where they wanted to go. Which and, is hilarious the way they play that yeah. in the show. And, and the town is nothing. It's a mm-hmm. couple of apartments. It's one cafe. And so they have to spend the night there. The whole show is really about them meeting the local townspeople and the relationships that kind of develop just overnight in mm-hmm. the space of, what would you say, 12 hours, something yeah, like I that? Yeah, I think it is just one overnight. They just spend the night, and then they go off to the place they were supposed to go in the first place. Right. A couple of guys stay with a family who has a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Shalhoub pretty much spends the night out with the young woman who runs the cafe, and they have yeah, Everybody some kind of changes numbers. their lives for the better in their 12 yeah. hours, which is why it's yeah. such a heartwarming show. I have to say I was underwhelmed by pretty much all of it. I, you know, I went in with fairly high expectations based on reviews and things I'd read about it on uh, Broadway.com and a couple of things that a few friends had said about having seen it. Again, I thought Tony Shalhoub was underused and I wasn't quite as overwhelmed by it from the front row as I I thought I was going to be. It's beautiful music. It's a lovely show in that respect. And I thought the performers were all really quite excellent. Uh, One guy in the band who teaches another townsperson how to get a girl Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a roller rink of all places was one of the great numbers. As a whole, I think I was expecting more. What was your experience like? Well, I was in the front row of the balcony, so I had a little bit of a, a further perspective than you did. I was very charmed by it. I thought it was sweet. I thought it was very moving. Now, I was a big fan of the movie, and so I knew the movie that it was based on. I had seen that a number of years ago, and so I was looking forward to it because I thought, hmm, wonder what they'll do. There is a band, but how are they going to make it into a musical? And I really liked all the songs. I can't wait for the you know cast album to come out. And I don't know, maybe it's better without Tony Shalhoub in it. I don't know. But <laughs> maybe I was it's really... better with a little distance. <laughs> and some distance. Charming is an excellent word yeah. for it. 
word. And it, it is an intimate show. It's not a big, giant production numbers. Most of the numbers are individual, personal sort of s- songs about their situation. I thought the lead woman was really quite great. I thought the guy waiting by the telephone was very moving. I kind of liked it a lot. The guy, <laughs> the guy by the telephone was quite moving. Uh, he's waiting uh, by this the single payphone in town mm-hmm. that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work, and he's waiting for his girlfriend to call. And his girlfriend that he like met, I don't know, a while ago when she was passing through town and she promised she would call. So it's not like his girlfriend's out of town. It's like a woman that he met and she went back home again to wherever her home was. Right. Katrina Lenk is yes. the name of the uh, young woman who plays the lead in this, and she's quite phenomenal. Yeah, I think people should watch for that Very name stunning. Tony nomination. Katrina time. Lenk, mm-hmm. L-E-N-K. Yeah. A charming show. We'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. I will agree that it's kind of a matter of taste. I mean, if you want a big, giant, splashy show, then get yourself over to Hello, Dolly, Bette Midler or not. But that's not what this is. This is more of a once. If you saw the show once, it reminded me of that kind of a show. Just a, a quiet, intimate, personal kind of thing, which probably worked very well off-Broadway. For me, it worked on Broadway. I think that uh, we've given our listeners uh, a good flavor of what that show's all about. Yeah, and those shows will both be playing. I mean, it, like sometimes you talk about a show and like, well, it's closing. So like, you know, Margaritaville's not going to be in Chicago. These, you know, Bernadette Peters is going to replace Bette Midler. And, uh, Mid-January, yes. Yeah, and I'm sure that the band's visit, you know, the tickets were very tight even in preview, so I'm sure that's going to be there for a while. So those are kind of safe bets if you want to check them out. They'll still be playing through the summer at least. What else did you see on your last visit? Did you go to that Elizabeth McGovern show, Time and the Conways? I did. I went and saw it, and it was kind of a funny thing. We had just gotten to New York, and I usually don't buy tickets the day of the show, or the day that I arrive in New York, because the plane is late, you know, I spent a lot of time running from LaGuardia, you know, barely making it. So we thought, well, let's see what's there. So we were walking by the TKTS booth, and when we went there, one of the only shows still left that had two tickets was Time in the Conways. Well, we were Downton Abbey fans. Like, well, for, you know, 80 bucks a ticket, let's let's go see that. How bad can it be? We knew nothing about it, other than it was a J.B. Priestley show from 1939, I think he had written it. Yeah. And I thought, okay, it'll be British, and it'll be talking about whatever. And I really liked it a lot. It was so interesting. Now that it's closed, I guess I can give away a little bit, but the first act takes place at the end of World War One has just ended, and this wealthy family, this... So around 1919, 1920. is when it takes place. Yeah. This wealthy widow, which is Elizabeth McGovern, and her, I think it's four daughters, are having a big party. So it's all very festive, and they're all talking about what they want to do. Then it goes to the next act, and it takes place in 1939, and things really have changed. You know, economically, things have changed. Everything is not doing well. This one made a bad marriage. You know, this one is very cynical. Things have not really worked out very well. Then it goes back to the party, but it starts with the one character lying asleep on the couch and waking up. So we don't know whether this glimpse of 1939 was her dream uh-huh. or whether we're actually seeing the future. And as a result, the party continues. And everybody's talking about all these things are going to do. And she's looking around horrified because she knows this one's going to die. And she knows this one's going to make a bad marriage. At least she thinks that's what's going to happen in, her, in you know, either her mind or this future that she glimpsed. 
Interesting. Is that character, is that the Elizabeth McGovern character? No, she's the mother. She's the mother. She's the mother. That This is the one daughter who comes back, you know, smoking a cigarette, and she's very cynical in the 1939 part. And then she goes back, and she can't be this bubbly young woman. I I thought it was really interesting. It was kind of British and kind of talky, but once you got through that, and we got six-row center seats or something at TKTS, so the house seats must have been out there. Yeah, mixed reviews, but an interesting interesting premise for a show. Really, And I, I had a friend who, also saw it and remarked very much the same way that you did and that he was pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. that he enjoyed it quite so much. Yeah, you're watching the first act, and you're like, okay, this is all kind of fun. Where is it going? And then the second act, you're like, oh my goodness. Then your third act is like, oh my God, I totally get it. Speaking of closings and openings, um, Once on This Island opened. Mm. I'm sorry that we did not have a chance to actually see that. Did you see the original production in 1990? No, I didn't, but I have friends who saw it and <sighs> thought it was delightful. Wonderful. I think La Chance uh-huh. was in it, mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing that correctly. That was a wonderful show. And I still have vivid memories of that experience. The review in the New York Times by Jesse Green today is a love letter. Oh, wow. Saying that in a dismal season so far, this is a bright, shining spot. Mm. And he gives fantastic notices to all of the cast. Michael Alden, who directed the Deaf West production of Spring Uh, Awakening. Uh, He's the director of this. It's at Circle in the Square. It sounds absolutely wonderful, uh, and uh, I'm so pleased for that production and that cast. It's very diverse casting in the Mm -hmm. show. This is by Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty. This is their first musical uh, of ragtime fame and Anastasia Mm -hmm. fame. I think it may, in fact, be their best I've always loved this show, and I can't wait to get back to New York and see this production. We saw one other show in New York. We saw Torch Song Ah. at uh, the Second Stage Theater with uh, Michael Urey and uh, Mercedes Rule as the mother. It was immensely enjoyable and beautifully produced. It's significantly cut down from the original Torch Song trilogy, mm-hmm. which was four hours or something. And this is all of it in and one show. And this is all of it in one show. They break it into three parts, uh-huh. uh, and they take an intermission after the second part. Uh, the second section of it all takes place in a big giant bed. If you, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that or not, or if you've ever seen a production of Torch Song. No, I think I saw the movie version, the filmed stage version or something when it came. Now, is this still off-Broadway or is this on? It is. It's at the Second Stage Theater. The Tony Kaiser Theater is what it's called. It's on uh, West 45th Street, 44th Street, just off of 8th Avenue on the other side of So it's still Avenue. pretty close to Broadway. Very close. <laughs> okay. A lot of people think it's going to move uh, to Broadway. I haven't heard definitively that it will, but it does have to close at the second stage because they're really kind of a subscription theater. Oh, the and next show things is coming in. Run yeah. And they've got another show coming in, <laughs> yeah. so they either have to close it or move it. Not only is Michael Yuri fantastic in the lead part, which was, of course, written by and for and originated by Harvey Firestein, but Mercedes Rule is so perfect as the mother. I remember seeing her in Lost in Yonkers, which is her mm-hmm. Tony Award winning role. Most people know her from film. 
don't see yeah, she her also on stage was, very often. She nominated for The Goat or Who is Sylvia, oh. the Albie show. Yeah. I, I saw her in that. I know she was terrific. Yeah, she's wonderful in this as his mother. Um, she's got some of the funnier lines in the piece and a lot of the more poignant lines in the piece as well. Uh, she appears in the third well, I guess you'd call it the third act, even though they only take one intermission, but it's, it's sort of act three in his apartment. A great performance. I hope it does move because she'll definitely be in the running for a nomination once again. I wanted to mention a musical that we saw here in Chicago. It is unfortunately now closed. Why I'm going to mention it is because I saw the original on Broadway. Did you see Fun Home? I did. I wondered if your experience was like mine. I was greatly moved and highly affected by the show. I wasn't crazy about it, but it was not the show's fault. It was the staging's fault. It was in the complete round, and I don't know who directed them to do that, but every single scene was done to the opposite side of the stage to where we were. I saw backs of heads for the entire show. And Get that out made of me, here. That made me so angry because you take directing 101 when you learn in the round, and as a result, I had a hard time enjoying the show. I like the performers. I thought they were good. I like the music that was in it. I thought the staging in New York was dreadful. Now, I do know someone who saw it here in Chicago, and they did not have that problem. It was in a standard proscenium-like mm, theater okay. with a big, large apron, uh, directed by Gary Griffin, who's quite well-known yeah, know here Gary. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He did this show, and I, I was as moved by it as I was by the Broadway production. Some beautiful, beautiful performances. I bring this up even though the show is closed, so you know our listeners can't go, and I'm sorry you can't go, Frank. Yeah, I should. Because um, yeah, you, you wouldn't see the back of a single head. Right. And maybe you'd get the show a little bit more. <laughs> well, I mean, I got it. I was just yeah. angry about the staging, and so that something like that can there's stick nothing, in your you know, craw. And there's you, nothing worse than that, mm-hmm. Having some peripheral or even experience that it's not the show's fault, but it it puts you in a bad mood for the entire uh, Well, my friend was there. We got tickets at the last minute, so we were on opposite sides, and she was on the opposite side, and she loved it. She was, like, blown away. I'm like, oh, well, you got to see faces. And she's like, yeah, I did. That's maybe where the director sat during rehearsals. Probably. Because you can't sit everywhere. I know. You, <laughs> I know. You do have to try to move around mm-hmm. uh, during the uh, previews and, the, tried and the dress rehearsal. <laughs> right. Well, it was a wonderful show. I, I bring it up because I wanted to just give kudos to uh, Victory Gardens for mounting such a fantastic production here in Chicago. Now, we have great theater here in Chicago, not just Broadway in Chicago. Yeah, because this wasn't a touring company. This was this a locally was generated, you know, which is great. Locally generated, mostly locally cast. It had all the greatest production values you could possibly want. Again, kudos to Victory Gardens, and uh, it made me so proud to be a Chicagoan and to be a fan and a frequent goer to Chicago theater. And the lead playing the uh, Alison Bechdel part was uh, our friend of the show, and she's been on the show before, Danny Smith. Ah, cool. I, I suspect she would have had a nicer back of her head as well. You would, might have enjoyed that <laughs> even <I> more. <laughs> um, something else I wanted to mention, a, again, another show that uh, unfortunately is not going to be running any longer at the Theater Wit. It's actually a co-production of About Face Theater. It's a show called Significant Other. 
Um, this is by Joshua Harmon. Played off Broadway in uh, actually played on Broadway seven, too. I sorry, yeah. played off Broadway and, and then, then moved, moved in uh, 2017. Unfortunately, it only played about 79 performances. It yeah. didn't get great reviews once it moved to Broadway. I did want to give a big shout out, however, to Alex Weissman. Alex Weissman played the lead role in this production that we saw, and you know you've been to theater wit. You mm-hmm. know that that theater is tiny. Right. The stage is about the size of this table that we're sitting around, and they jam in as many seats as they possibly can. I don't think they even have 100 seats in there. Well, he gave this monumentally fantastic performance. It really just absorbed the entire house and the stage and everybody who was watching. You, you couldn't help but just be dragged in, whether kicking or screaming or not, into the story of this play that's Um, one of the nice things about going to a theater that has such a small space yeah you can be just you know completely involved in it we saw him do the history boys a couple of seasons ago here and he has now been cast and if this is any indication of the quality of the cast of this show run don't walk if you can possibly get a ticket to harry potter and the cursed child oh i've heard of that yeah so he's uh, going to be in that production uh-huh. uh, i assume he's gotten on a plane and is off rehearsing it now because that show is probably either in rehearsal or about to start uh-huh. that's one of those shows that you can't really get tickets to you had to register on Ticketmaster to become oh, really? a, a fan or a registered fan of the show and then that gave you the opportunity to be in line to purchase tickets it's a whole new Ticketmaster well, yeah, Bruce way. Bruce Springsteen is doing that. Exactly. You have to have a lottery, and you have to prove you're a fan and all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, it's a way to prevent bots from purchasing big blocks of tickets before actually the general public can right. get them and, and brokers and then selling them for thousands and thousands of dollars when producers want to have that money in their pocket, as well they should. And they want to have the real true fans there. If they're if you're a really Harry Potter fan or you're a real Bruce Springsteen fan, that's you want in the audience, not somebody who can afford to pay a thousand bucks just because it's the thing to do. Well, exactly right. So great going to Alex, and I hope he has a wonderful, wonderful time in the new Harry oh, Potter yeah. show, oh, yeah. which I don't think I'll be able to see for actually a couple of years. That that makes me sad. I have not read any Harry Potter books, so I'm not as sad Shame as you on are. You. As, as sad as you are. I saw the first movie, and I thought it was okay, but I was never motivated to see any of the rest, so the Harry Potter thing kind of passed me by. It's not too late. I guess, except the books are like 800 pages. Other things I think I want to read. They breeze by. I read all eight, I guess, of them, seven, eight, in probably took me two months. And I did not read constantly. And the writing gets better and better and better each book. Okay. You should read those. Well, if I have time. What else do you have to do besides go to Broadway? Well, I have to come do podcasts. and. (laughs) Well, Broadway had, getting back to The Great White Way, you you know how The Great White Way got that name, right? Um, I think I used to know, but I can't recall Well, you know, uh, originally theaters were lit by gas and they were poorly ventilated. In the 19th century, they were 
prone to fires, of course. But at the beginning of the 20th century, architects who were building new theaters realized that the safer electric light bulb had enormous potential, not only in uh, safety terms, but as advertising potential. Mm. And as early as 1910, this boggles the mind, 1910, that's six years before World War I, Broadway signage dazzled visitors and the streets soon became known throughout the world as the Great White Way, Uh mostly because of the bright white lights. That was before most towns in America had electric lights in their streets. They had a record week on Broadway during the Thanksgiving week. Um, No small thanks to the money we spent. (laughs) There you go. I'll mention a few. Hamilton, of course. This is ludicrous. Hamilton grossed a whopping $3.4 million. Yikes. It used to be the days when a show like The Lion King reached a million dollars for a week. That was a big deal. That was a huge deal. $3.4 million. Uh, Do you know what the average price of a uh, ticket uh, for Hamilton these days is the average price. Oh dear, what? The average price is $321. Wow. Now that's, again, just an average, if you can find a seat for for that amount of money. I heard that they're opening a block of Hamilton tickets for Chicago, like tomorrow. I guess it's being extended and there's some new Hamilton tickets. So, of course, people are going to be hearing this when that was last week. But I'll mention a few other shows. Hello, Dolly, which we've talked about already with Bette Midler, brought in $2.5 million dollars. $2.5 $2.5 million. Wow. I think Bernadette Peters is going to do extremely well in well, that when she show replaced, that show. Um, when she replaced Catherine Zeta-Jones in um, A Little Night Music with Elaine Stritch, that played for quite a while. So, you know, she's no piker when it comes to Broadway. She's very good. Yeah. I've always liked her. Yeah. I haven't heard her sing in a few years, so I don't know. But she she does occasionally do these one-night concerts she does. on the road. I saw her in Gypsy, which is maybe that was, I don't know, what, eight, nine years ago. About that. And that's a big, powerful, you know, number numbers in it. And she was fine. She was in good voice. You mentioned Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. Uh, that show grossed $2.4 million. Mm. Not, not a record for the theater, but still very, very robust. They have just announced at the Walter Kerr that that show is now extended oh, wow. through June. Who, play, um, who plays his understudy on Tuesday nights? Mandy Patinkin. Uh, oh, yeah, great. I hear he's great. <laughs> uh, if they can get him. He's going to take February off, apparently. They're going to uh-huh. shut the show down in February on a hiatus. He's probably got some other commitments. But then they're going to pick it up again. And uh, when we were in New York, we stayed at a hotel, which I won't mention on the air because it's a beautiful European-like boutique hotel oh, oh. in Held's Kitchen, and I don't want everybody going there and, <laughs> and, and then raising the prices. Right. But we stayed at this cute little place, and they had breakfast every morning in the front room, mm. uh, free breakfast every morning in the front room, and we ran into this couple who were going to see Springsteen that night. Oh. We asked them what they paid for their tickets, and he wouldn't say... <laughs> it's that old line of somewhere between ouch and boing. Yeah, right. <laughs> People who are Springsteen fans are used to paying outrageous prices just to go see one of his shows. So, you know, it probably wasn't that different than what they paid before if they were trying to get good probably seats. Probably not. Probably very comparable. When there's a star that people want to see, there seems to be no price that 1,500 people are willing to pay. Right, uh, right. Speaking of Springsteen and ben And it Mendler. does become, like you were saying, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. 
experience. If this is somebody you really want to see, you will have that memory the rest of your life, and there's no other way you can get it by seeing that person live. You've seen tons of live stuff, not yeah. just theater, but concerts as well. Is there anybody that you haven't seen, or maybe that you have already seen, that you would pay almost anything to see either again or for the first time? I don't think so, because everybody that I would really, really want to see, I kind of have seen, You've seen in bad. performance. I've seen bad. You know, the, You've seen Streisand. I've seen Streisand. I've seen Cher. I've seen you know those classics. And I've seen a, a lot of people that I really like, mostly because I made an effort to go see them. If they were performing somewhere, I'm like, okay, I have to go see Diana Ross. Right now, off the top of my head, I'm sure there are people, there are people I wish I had seen. I had a chance when I was in New York to see Peggy Lee a couple of years before she died, and oh. I didn't go. I had a chance to see Brett Summer perform just before she died, if you remember her, from the old Match Game shows. And that would be just a real oddball person to that see. That is a very oddball person. But she was, was performing. Was she doing a cabaret show somewhere? Doing a cabaret show, yeah, at some little pub somewhere. And we could have gone. We ended up not going. And then she died a year later. I did see Phyllis Diller in concert. Oh, actually, quite a quite a while before she died because she was still you know, performing. I saw Rosemary Clooney a year before she died. I'm mentioning all females, but these are sort of the legendary people that you want to see. I saw Stephen Eady. A couple years before Steve Lawrence, <laughs> before Edie Gourmet died, he's still alive. My big question to you is, did you ever see the Carpenters in concert? No, I did not. I did. Oh, at, that, I wish I could At the, that. what was then the fairly brand new Airy Crown Theater ah. uh, down here at McCormick Place. I've been a huge Karen Carpenter fan oh, yeah. for lo these many years. I miss her every day. Yeah, there's no voice like that. And I always am happy when the holidays roll around so I can put on the Carpenter's yeah, Christmas yeah, album. Yeah. She had a, a, a voice that's touched by an angel. I think that I would pay pretty much anything to see Meryl Streep on stage. Mm. She hasn't done a play in quite some time. I can't really think of what I'd love to see her in. I did see Meryl Streep in person. She wasn't performing, but I did. she did say something to me. You didn't have to pay for that, though. <laughs> it was when the movie Suffragette came out a couple of years ago. Oh, we were yeah. at the Toronto Film Festival, the way Toronto works is you get passes and then you stand in line and you can go to see any of the movies you want because you paid for this pass. But, you know, if you're far back in line, you may not get in, etc. We had just gone to see another show. I thought, I want to see the Suffragette movie. So we ran over. There were still seats left because they aren't reserved seats. And just as we were walking in, they said, well, they've just introduced the cast. They did a little hello and you have to wait till they like come out. We're like, OK, so we're standing there. So they all kind of came out. They said, you know, you can go in. So we started to walk in, and all of a sudden, Meryl Streep, I guess, was straggling or something. She came out, and she She's said, hello. <laughs> and I said, oh, hello. And she said, enjoy the show. And I said, okay. So I have interacted with Meryl Streep. I didn't see her perform, but she did talk to me. I hear she's very pleasant. She was. She was lovely. Just I mean, these two like dorks person. walking in, and she was very nice to us. Back to Broadway for a moment. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen broke the uh, record at the Music Box Theater uh, Thanksgiving week, grossing $1.9 million. It seem, no. That seems like nothing compared yeah. to Hamilton. Have you seen Dear Evan Hansen? 
not able to get into Dear Evan okay. Hansen. We tried a couple of avenues, and it just wasn't. It just wasn't. It's working. really wonderful, and he was leaving. I think he's left now. He has and left. So now. that's probably why at that time that was the last call to see um, Ben Platt. You you saw Ben Platt do yeah. the show. Oh, he was just wonderful. The whole show is wonderful. Again, it's one of those quiet, intimate shows, but it's hilarious and moving at the same time. It's about this kid who sort of starts this lie and then has to live with it and how it completely gets out of hand. But I thought it was wonderful. You mentioned you ran into Meryl Streep at the Toronto Film Festival. Yep. Is that what it was? Yeah. Your, uh, your husband, your partner, Dan, uh-huh. uh, he's a filmmaker. He is. Not documentaries, actual... No, fiction films. Fiction yeah. films. Mm-hmm. And you go to a lot of film festivals, I we do. bet. We do. I've never been to one. What oh is my. it like to be on the festival circuit? How, how much fun is it to be at, say, Toronto or Telluride? Well, it's great fun because, first of all, you're seeing movies before anybody else sees them because a lot of the big ones will come out in November and December, particularly if they're big Christmas releases. And Telluride is over Labor Day weekend, and um, Toronto is the week after that. So, you know, you see things like the world premiere of Sideways. We saw... Spotlight when no one had heard of it. I mean, you do. You have to sort of pick and choose because you don't have the luxury of all the reviews because no one's seen them, so you kind of have to go on the actors that are in the film or you have to go on, you know, some buzz you may have heard or the topic sounds interesting or a favorite director that you have. It's very exciting to go. It's a little bit hectic. And, and Toronto and Telluride are very different in the sense that Toronto, you have to order your tickets in advance and you have to order first and second choices for each of the slots because you may or may not get your first choice at 2 o'clock on Tuesday and so you'll get your second choice or whatever. Telluride, you get a pass that you wear around your neck and you can go to any of the shows that are playing. But like I said before, you have to get in line and make sure that if there's 500 seats that you're one of the top 500 people. What they do at Telluride that I really like is you go there, let's say, an hour and a half before the show starts. You wait in line for a half hour. At the hour moment, an hour before the show starts, they pass out numbers, one, two, three, four, five, to all the people. And then maybe 15 minutes before the show starts, you come back and get in line in your order. So you're not standing in line oh, the whole that's, time. that's a smart thing. That really is nice, you know, because you kind of get there early, then you get your number. Once you got your number, if your number, you know, 62, you're going to get in. So you're, you're running standing from... in line, or you have your ticket and you show up in line, are, are, you, are you hobnobbing with um, oh, absolutely. Uh, stars and uh, No, because the stars aren't and... standing in line, but, but the reviewers... Um, <laughs> Meryl's not standing in line? Meryl is not standing me. in line. Meryl gets whisked in the uh, rear door. Yeah, I see. But you are standing in line with critics. I mean, Michael Phillips has been in line with us, you know, the critic for Chicago Tribune. A.O. Scott, who does New York Times, he was like, you know, a couple people down with his daughter. And, you know, so yeah, so people like that. And then a lot of a lot of industry people are there. So you're talking to some like, oh yeah, I work for such and such films. We're going to watch this. Hopefully we can get it. Because they're all, a lot of them are looking for, you know, distribution. And so there's a lot of, so a lot of people in the business. Tell you right, it's an expensive film festival to go to. The pass is expensive, and the accommodations are pretty expensive, and it's also hard to get to. You have to fly, like, to Denver, and then either fly to Durango or fly to some other yeah, small town not, that takes shuttles for two hours. Yeah. To, yes, it's say. not easy to get to, but once you get there, it's great. 
If you like what you uh, hear on Booth One, you can support our efforts in bringing you the finest in the art of lively conversation and scintillating guests like my friend here, Frank Taranjo, by going to our website at www.booth-one.com and click on the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible. No amount is too small or too large, <laughs> as, as they say. Right. And any contribution would be greatly greatly appreciated. I want to talk about a couple of other shows that uh, we have seen recently, and they are here in Chicago. They are similar in their larger theme. We saw a show called Evening at the Talk House that is at the Red Orchid Theater. Michael Shannon is a member of the Red Orchid Theater. He was not, unfortunately, in this play, but this is a play by Wallace Shawn, and it takes place in a, not really a coffee shop, but a maybe exclusive, like, drinking establishment called the Talk House. And it's a group of people who are getting together after 20 or so years. They were all together doing a play. The lead mm. character is the playwright. They all did this play together. It's like follies. <laughs> in, in, a, in a big kind of way. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not, I don't believe the play was a musical, but they all did this play together. Some of them were designers. One guy's the producer. A couple of people were actors in the play. And they're using that as an excuse to get together back at the talk house. It was a place they went after rehearsals or after performances. The show kind of moves along in that alumni reunion aspect until the tone changes. Uh, it turns out that they are now living in a society where murdering people because they're not worthy or they've done something that society is not accepting of or they're not accepting of, it's perfectly legal to hire people to go kill them. Oh, wow. This is Wallace Shawn. Where did he get this from? <laughs> Yikes. It has this dystopian feel, but it has also a very, very current feel. They don't try to pretend that this is taking place in you know, 2050 or anywhere else. It's taking place here and now and right in front of you. It's quite disturbing. It sounds like it's... And it's a, it's a real indictment, I think, of some things that may be going on in our society these days where yeah. there's a great divisiveness uh, in the country. And we don't usually talk politics on the show, but it's almost unavoidable these days. How are you dealing with, well, I was going to say Trump's antics, but how are you dealing with the Trumpian universe? Well, the Trumpian universe started on my birthday. My birthday was November 8th. I was not real thrilled with the outcome, and it did put a bit of a damper on my birthday party. And for a while, I really could not listen to the news at all. It just made me so upset. But now I kind of can't wait to watch the news to find out how they screwed up even more. What do you think of this new tax overhaul? Well, as far as I can tell, it's not going to be a tax cut for me and probably anybody in me this room. No. I mean, it's going to be a tax cut for the wealthy people, and it sounds as if they are catering to their donors, and the donors said, you better get this for us because I see nothing 
for middle and lower class at all, nothing. I was just listening to a, a, a radio broadcast on the way down here, and they said that, you know, each person is supposed to get like $1,000. So that sounds great, except for the fact that they're going to take away the deductions for mortgages and take away deductions for your state tax that you pay local, for. Local state And that's going to cost you probably like $2,000. So no, you're not getting a tax cut. You're getting a tax increase because they have to find the money somewhere to give the tax breaks to all these corporations. The corporations pay for, uh, supposedly we have like 38%, but most of them pay like 15% because they have loopholes. They're not taking any of those loopholes away. So it is, I think, one of the greatest scams ever. People say to me, how can they do this? How can they do this? And my answer is, well, because it's a Republican president and a Republican Senate and a Republican House. And these are the things that they said they would do. It's no mystery. Yeah. Uh, they're they're, not, well, they're someone, not making up new rules. They're trying to do what they yeah. said they were going to do, yeah. as scary as that, as that is. I'm not surprised by any of this. I'm shocked that the Democrats haven't put up a better fight. Well, I'm not sure they can do anything because there's no filibuster. They're trying to get the word out, but it has to be those one or two senators or whatever who vote against it, like what happened with health care. Somebody was saying today on the radio that this has been Paul Ryan's dream since he was in high school. Now, I don't know what your dreams in high school were, but they were not, you know, screwing the American people out of, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars. But evidently his was. And don't get me started on Nancy Pelosi. Well, don't get me started on anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) But I do have one other show that I would like to talk about as a little PS here. I am going to San Diego over Christmas, and I'm seeing a performance of Summer, colon, the Donna Summer musical. Which is directed and written by Des McAuliffe and the people who were behind Jersey Boys. And also, this, it's La Jolla Theater, which also sent Margaritaville out. And uh, you mentioned LaShans a while ago. She is in it. There, evidently, there are three Donna Summers the young, the diva, and then the older one or whatever. And so maybe if it's good, I'll be back talking about it on Broadway someday. It is planned. Broadway is in the sights for the show. You're palpably excited about this. I'm very excited about it. Oh, my God. I'm very excited about it. Your I think. eyes have gotten wider, and your smile is extending to your ears. I it's hope fantastic. That, yeah, I hope that continues when I'm watching this show. We, well, San Diego over Christmas sounds wonderful. Enjoy it the does. show, and I can't wait to hear about this project. Yeah, I've got fingers crossed. I hope it's good. The I mean, other, I'll enjoy the music, if nothing else. Yeah, the other play I wanted to mention, and we just saw this a couple days ago, is Tracy Lett's new play at the Steppenwolf Theater, directed by uh, Anna Shapiro. They've reunited after their great triumph of August Osage County. And I think this is also in the works for Broadway, too. This has already been announced for Broadway. that's more than in the works. Even before they started rehearsal, I think. Okay. Uh, But this is a play called The Minutes, and they've gathered, well, pretty much the cream of the crop of their ensemble is in this. Mm. Not that they're not all cream of the crop. They're great ensemble members. But they've brought back uh, William Peterson. Oh, wow. Uh, he's now no longer on CSI. Francis Guinan is in this. Kevin Anderson is in this. Danny McCarthy, Jeff Still, Penny Slusher. It's the great, great, great cast. This is a show about a... City Council. Uh, The town is called Big Cherry. Uh, (laughs) And it's a city council meeting with a mayor and other council members. And the set is a 
city council room in this town, and they proceed to talk about things like parking and the the big cherry festival and, you know, <laughs> where, where they're going to put this and where they're going to put that. And they're talking about a fountain, redoing a fountain so that disabled people can actually roll up to the, you know, okay. all the things that you talk about. Did you watch very public mundane. access television. And yeah. I know, you know, you're sitting there and our listeners are sitting going, well, that doesn't sound very interesting. I can go to Waukegan and hear all of that yeah, in the city right, council meeting. Right. Things begin to turn rather dramatically again it turns into almost a weird dystopian type of government it appears that the history of the town is built on a total lie mm-hmm. and uh, william peterson has one of the great lines in the play which i think is very defining of the theme of this history is a verb now that may or may not be true but he says that in a way that leads you to believe that history is mutable. That if you keep saying the same thing over and over and over, at some point people are going to believe that that's what's really true. That sounds familiar. It sounds very familiar. Now, we saw these two plays, Evening at the Talk House and The Minutes, within... 10 days of each other. And now I'm like, (laughs) my my head is ready to explode. It's extremely timely. I believe the play still needs some work. Okay. It's definitely satire, but it steps over a line that I think takes over... Into the absurd, maybe? And You know, it is almost absurd. It's almost like a hallucination, and at some point you can't really decide, and this is towards the end of the play, and it's, you know, 90 minutes, lickety-split, no mm-hmm. intermission. At some point towards the end of the play, it turns very surreal. That's the word I'm kind of looking okay. for. And we went with a third person, and we were all very confused by the surreal part. <laughs> Is this what really happens when the doors are closed uh, at the city council meeting Mm -hmm. with these council members? Or is this Tracy Letts' take on or a comment on our society in in general or a comment on middle America? Big Cherry, we don't really know where it is, but I know that Tracy Letts is from the South, Oklahoma. I mean, Osage County was really written about where he grew up. And, and this has a very kind of Kansasy feel. Midwestern. Very Midwestern, folksy, folksy frontier-like. Uh-huh. A great deal of the plot turns on discussion of Native Americans and their involvement in the founding of this town, or the not founding of this town, <laughs> if you believe this. But both of these shows really rang true to me about the, again, the divisiveness of what's going mm. on in Middle America, especially. Uh, they're both still playing. Evening at the Talk House is still playing. It's probably going to be closing soon. The minutes just opened and it's running. They've extended it now through January 7th or something like that. Okay, so you've so got there's a little time to watch that. Lots of one. time to go see that. Very interesting piece. There's a lot going on here and a lot to be said and some very interesting themes to be explored. It just could use a little bit of tweaking here and there, but I recommend it. Something else that I wanted to just mention about the current administration is that Mm -hmm. 
In their wisdom, they lifted a ban on elephant trophies here in uh, the country. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm a big elephant fan. <laughs> Who doesn't like elephants? I know. And they're endangered, the whole thing. But to their credit, once some people a little bit higher up the food chain found out about it, they reinstated the bans that had been put into place during the Obama administration. And I couldn't be happier about that. Trophies are you know, tusks, hides, ears, tails, trunks, feet, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, right. Well, those have all been put in place some time ago, and they were reinstated. So I applaud that. If that's, Hopefully that'll if, stick. If, if that's really reason for happiness, I don't know. <laughs> In this day and age, yes, anything like that is, because now they're shrinking some of the national monuments. And so they want drilling and all that stuff in there. So there's a reason for happiness, and the next day there's a reason to be depressed again. Yeah, I'm going to quickly change tack here and uh, tell our listeners that the Golden Globe nominations will be out in a couple of days from the airing of this episode. Uh, Have you seen Get Out? I have seen Get Out. Did you see Lady Bird? I did see Lady Bird, yes. We saw Lady Bird yesterday. And I think it's a wonderful movie. It and is. really it is. terrific performances that in that uh, Shersay uh, Ronin is what a phenomenal actress. What a find. She's great. And then she Laurie just came Metcalf, out of nowhere. Laurie Metcalf, who you'd expect to be good, is also fabulous. Speaking fabulously of Steppenwolf part. ensemble members. Yeah. yeah. No, that's terrific. Those, I think, are going to be the front runners. I hope another one in the mix is Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, uh, Missouri. Oh, sure. I loved that because it's by Martin McDonough, who is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, playwright. He did Beauty Queen of Lanan, and he did The Skull and Connemara, and all the Inishmore plays. And now he did In Bruges, which I loved, and Seven Psychopaths, which I liked. And then this one is really good, and Francis McDormand is terrific. So I'm hoping that one is in the mix for, uh, for some things. Well, as usual, Frank, we end our episodes with the segment I call The Kiss of Death. Just someone that I that has passed recently that I found had a very amazing, interesting life or had something particularly noteworthy about how they lived and what they brought to us. This is going to be a famous one. Okay. Because I just couldn't resist. Jim Neighbors oh, yeah. passed. Jim Neighbors, who starred as Gomer Pyle on The Andy Griffith Show and on his own sitcom before retiring the wide-eyed, countryfied character at the height of his popularity. You know, that that show was still in the top five. Uh, I'm speaking of Gomer Pyle, USMC, I guess, was still in the top five in the ratings when he decided to give it all up. He never really wanted to be an actor. A native of Alabama, Neighbors also recorded more than two dozen albums with a rich operatic baritone voice. Which was a big surprise when you heard him talk as Gomer Pyle. Yeah, it surprised those who were used to hearing his neighbors (laughs) exclaim, golly, Sarge, with a southern twang. In the early 1960s, Neighbors was a regular performer at a place called The Horn, which is a cabaret theater on Wilshire Boulevard in Santa Monica that showcased new talent. He was spotted by Andy Griffith, who thought Neighbors would be perfect to play a new character on the CBS sitcom uh, The Andy Griffith Show, which was extremely popular at the time. And that would be Gomer. 
a dim-witted, affable mechanic at Wally's Filling Station in Mayberry, and a cousin of Goober. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Goober was already on the that's, show, I that's think. That's right. right? Yeah. They, they, yeah. Were, they were adding a character. Neighbors was signed for just one episode, which aired midway through the Andy Griffith Show's third season in 1962. But Gomer proved so popular that Neighbors went on to appear on 23 installments of the series. Uh-huh. It culminated in the fourth season finale in which Gomer joins the U.S. Marines. Um, that episode also served as a spin-off mm-hmm. into his new series, Gomer Pyle, USMC, United States Marine Corps. It aired for five years from 64 to 69. I was a watcher of the show. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That is, you know, smack dab in my childhood television watching oh, yeah. Completely. period. Completely. Uh, and it was also on CBS, a great success in the ratings, always in the top 10 and number two in its final season. Before, as I said, the actor decided to pursue other activities, which included hosting his own variety show. Hmm. I don't know if you remember the variety show very often. Uh-huh. He, he frequently had people on that were co-stars on Gomer Pyle uh-huh. and on and the Andy Griffith show. He uh, showcased his singing and comedic talents uh, on the show, which was called the Jim Neighbors Hour. The big-hearted neighbors never ventured far into movies, though he did perform opposite his pal Burt Reynolds in such fare as the best little whorehouse in Texas. Oh. These these are not these mm. are not Golden Globe nomination True. movies. True. Uh, a movie called Stroker Ace from 1983, and as a character named Private Homer Lyle in Cannonball Two Run. <laughs> Sorry, in Cannonball Run Two. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Say. <laughs> Yeah, there were not a lot of nominations for those uh, those films. James Thurston Neighbors was born uh, June 12, 1930 in Sylacauga, Alabama, the son of a policeman. He sang in high school and acted in fraternity productions at the University of Alabama. After graduating with a degree in business administration, he moved to New York and he worked as a typist and answered phones at the United Nations. Uh Uh-oh. It's said that some people would try to speak to him in varying languages, trying to figure out what his language was because he had (laughs) such a deep accent, it didn't sound like English all the time. (laughs) Neighbors returned to the South and worked as a film cutter for a TV station in Chattanooga, then moved to Los Angeles where the climate was better suited to his lifelong asthma. And he landed a similar job at NBC. At nights, he sang and spun tales as a Gomer-like character at the horn. And the rest, as they say, uh, Frank, is history. He first demonstrated his singing ability to TV viewers in 1964 on CBS's The Danny Kay Show. I loved Danny Kay. I did too. Folks out there, if you don't know Danny Kay, YouTube some of his stuff or or, or rent or watch some of his movies. They're just phenomenal. The Inspector General is one of my favorites. (laughs) Yes. And also on the Gomer Pyle episode that aired in November 1967, he sang The Impossible Dream from Man of La Mancha. Now, I just watched that. I YouTubed it the other day and watched it, and it's just fantastic. He appears in his dress marine uniform in front of this big, giant orchestra. The plot escapes me. Why uh-huh. Why they're doing this variety show with a big orchestra, I don't know, but he loses his voice halfway through the episode, but by the end he gets his voice back and they shove him on stage and he <laughs> sings The Impossible Dream from Man of La Mancha. It would wow. become a concert staple for him. His 1980 album, The Heart Touching Magic of Jim Neighbors went platinum. Hmm. He lived for a long time in Hawaii. I'm not sure you knew that. Oh, uh, he starred regularly at the Hilton Hawaiian Village Dome. 
oh. in a show called The Gym Neighbors Polynesian Extravaganza. <laughs> I want to I want to star in that. Oh. Like, how do I get my own yeah. Polynesian Extravaganza? You're talking about people you wish you have seen, and, and, and the, he'd and be one of them. Exactly. In the 1980s, uh, it was one of the state's top showbiz attractions. He lived in Hawaii, as I said, for more than 30 years, where he had a macadamia nut farm. Oh, my. Yeah, in Hana. Hmm. In January of uh, 2013, neighbors exchanged wedding vows with Stan Cadwallader, his partner of almost four decades, before a judge in a Seattle hotel room. Hmm. This is right after it became legal to get married in uh, Washington State. Asked in a 2000 interview with the Los Angeles Times about why the Andy Griffith Show and Gomer Pyle continued to be so popular, in fact, in reruns and and syndication. Still is. Still on. (laughs) Yeah. Neighbors said, television has become very cynical, even in the comedy shows, and the cynicism from the young people just boggles my mind. Sounds like Jim Neighbors had quite a wonderful life. Mr. Neighbors was 87 years old. Uh-huh. I have always loved Jim Neighbors. And yeah, I did too. That was one of my favorite characters too. I think everybody what just... What was not to like? Exactly. It was like exactly. the nicest guy in the world. He played the nicest characters in the world. And, oh, and that was the nice contrast when he was on Andy Griffith, but also when he was in the Marines, people would be shouting and yelling at him, and he was just like this guy, just, you know, just a normal <laughs> kind of person. Yeah. It's like, really? Yeah. Why are you so upset? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, like us on Facebook, everyone. Follow us on Twitter. To review past episodes, go to, well, again, the aforementioned www.booth-one.com. For Booth One and my co-host, Frank Taranjo, say goodnight, Frank. I will say goodnight, and thank you for having me. This is Gary Zabinski saying so long, and keep listening. Keep listening.